There are those of us who are haunted by our own mortality, for whom the specter of impending death is an ever-present hunter, always close behind, nipping at our heels. Most simply try to elude it, but some are determined to stop running and become hunters themselves. These are their tales. I'm your host, Tybee Diskin, and together we are Chasing Immortality. Elizabeth Bathory, a.k.a. it gets way, way worse. When was the last time you heard a truly good, scary story? I don't mean the average Halloween tale about the witch that supposedly lives down the street in your old cul-de-sac. When was the last time a legend burrowed under your skin, seeped into your very core, and kept you up all night long? forcing you to check your locks and recheck your locks and make sure all the curtains were closed. When was the last time the terror of a scary tale stuck with you for days? The best scary stories don't just stay with you. They crystallize within our minds, stick with us in our guts, surprise us in ways that we only discover long after we've stopped the movie and closed the books. A good scary story isn't a one-time event. It haunts us. We here at Chasing Immortality know exactly when we last heard a story like that. People obsessed with immortality often go to uncomfortable lengths to get what they want. We're no strangers to the macabre side of humanity, but even we get squeamish thinking about our subject today. Rumors conflate with fact, jealousies abound, mysticism goes as dark as it possibly can, and no matter how bad you're expecting it to get, it will get worse. As we take you back in time to when kings, queens, and nobles ruled Europe. Now, I'd like to take this moment to warn you that this story involves moderately detailed accounts of graphic violence around the 20-minute mark. But don't worry. If you'd like to opt out of that bit, you won't have to stare at a progress bar to ditch at the right moment. I will give you an auditory warning, and at that point, you can skip ahead eight minutes. Exploring the edges of the human psyche is entertaining, yes, but we love you, and we want you to be healthy. Okay? Okay. Moving on. To set the scene... Chaktitsa Castle, a lonely stone structure, juts upward against the slate-gray sky of Slovakia. Although it's mostly ruins now, in its prime, Chaktitsa Castle was both formidable and beautiful. The hills surrounding it are a luscious green with a forest reaching up the side of the mountain. Only a few villages nearby break up the expanse of farmland, wheat fields, and green grass as far as the eye can see. On the right day, If the sky is clear and the sun shines down on Chaktsitsa, its high turrets and grand walls could almost be mistaken for the set of a Disney movie. But there's nothing family-friendly about this castle. No singing princesses or enchanted animals roam these grounds. This fortress, looming over the charming villages below, once housed one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. The perpetrator of bloody murders, sadistic beatings, in unspeakable tortures. The person who once held court in Chachtitsa Castle was said to have partially inspired Bram Stoker's classic horror story, Dracula. But who invoked such carnage? Who enacted these countless acts of violence? 
Who was this person so terrifying that they put Stoker's Dracula to shame? Intrepid listeners, it is here that we must introduce you to Elizabeth Bathory, a.k.a. Elizabeth Bathory, a.k.a. the Blood Countess of Hungary. This noblewoman, who committed countless atrocities in the search for eternal youth and immortality, plagued the nightmares of generations of people. Whispers of her name still strike fear into the hearts of those who know her crimes. However, before we dive into Elizabeth and her bloody legacy, we'll need a bit of context. In 1514, in the Kingdom of Hungary, there was a massive peasant revolt. The lower class came so close to successfully overthrowing the monarchy that it scared the rich, so much so that in the aftermath of the rebellion, the frightened aristocracy passed a series of laws giving themselves absolute control over the proletariat. Not only did they give themselves the ability to rule with an iron fist in this new system, the aristocracy also handed out barbaric punishments to those who had revolted. The leader of the failed rebellion was made an example of, forced to sit on a boiling hot iron throne while grasping a red-hot royal scepter. Two torturers then placed a red-hot iron crown on his head, pushing it down onto his cranium agonizingly slowly so as to make his death as excruciating as possible. Subtle. It was into this world of cruelty and unchallenged nobility that Elizabeth was born. The woman that history would come to know as the Blood Countess was born, Elizabeth Bathory, in the Kingdom of Hungary on August 7, 1560, to Baron George Bathory VI and his wife, Baroness Anna Bathory. Her family was incredibly powerful, ruling Transylvania, what's up Bram Stoker, with their vast wealth. Elizabeth's education reflected her status as the shining daughter of one of the most prominent families in Central Europe, and her intelligence and capabilities were obvious from a very early age. Growing up, she spoke fluently in Slovak, Greek, German, Latin, and her native Hungarian. If only her education had been strictly academic. In addition to formal schooling, Elizabeth also received a detailed education in violence. The Baron and Baroness were known to be incredibly cruel, attacking their workers and horrifically beating their servants for the smallest of missteps. Elizabeth loved every second of it. Several legends include tales of her as a little girl, smiling broadly at the sight of servants being beaten. Other stories have her watching on delightedly as men were beheaded before her. One such tale includes her falling into a fit of laughter while watching a man accused of stealing be sewn into the inside of a horse as punishment, her laughter crescendoing along with the man's screams. Not only did she have a penchant for violence, but Elizabeth also showed an early obsession with blood. Historians claim that this could have started due to her poor health as a child. She was epileptic and prone to increasingly violent seizures. Many historians have theorized that her weak constitution had to do with the fact that her parents were first cousins, and others have wondered aloud if perhaps she struck her head during one of these seizures. After all, Studies have shown that one in four serial killers had some sort of trauma to their frontal lobes early on in life. Others hypothesize that her obsession with blood could be attributed to the treatment of the illness. At the time, not much was known about epilepsy. It was often called falling sickness, and the treatments for it were barbaric. One popular remedy, and that's remedy with some big air quotes here, folks, was to rub the blood of a non-epileptic person on the lips of the person suffering. Another common remedy was a mixed drink of the blood from a non-epileptic person, again, to ward off further episodes. 
From as early as she could remember, Elizabeth was either watching her parents spill blood or she was drinking it. Regardless of the evils she witnessed and the illnesses she suffered, Elizabeth grew up to be a stunning young woman whose hand in marriage was highly sought after. Upsettingly, she was engaged to be married by the age of 10 to Count Ferenc Nadezhdi. While politically motivated marriage arrangements were common practice at the time, both Elizabeth and Ferenc were very young when their marriage was arranged. Her fiancé's family wanted to lock it down, though, and so it was done. Even at 10 years old, Elizabeth still had a much higher social status than her 15-year-old betrothed, and she and her family made it clear she had no intention of changing her last name. Instead, her fiancé would adopt the name Bathory to reflect that he had married up. I'd like to officially announce that I will be stealing this, so my apologies in advance to whomever I marry. You will be a diskin. Anyway, back to our 10-year-old serial killer. So, at an age when most of us were still watching cartoons and chowing down on Lunchables, Elizabeth Bathory was moving into the house of her soon-to-be husband's parents. For the next five years, she would continue to receive her academic education, as well as learn how to run the estate that her mother-in-law was currently in charge of. This was not a hunky-dory scenario. Elizabeth was incredibly willful and answered to no one. Rumor had it that she had an affair with a peasant boy in her early teens and became pregnant with his child. But it should be noted that according to Elizabeth's own later accounts of the event, it was non-consensual and involved her being abducted against her will. When Ferenc found out, he had the peasant castrated and thrown to a pack of wild dogs. And as frightening and problematic as everything I just said is, it appears that Ferenc and Elizabeth were surprisingly well-matched when it came to their love of violence. The pair married on May 8, 1574, when Elizabeth was 14 and Ferenc was 19. Because of the couple's prominence and wealth, their wedding was an enormously extravagant event, stretching across three days with four and a half thousand people said to have been in attendance. At the pinnacle of the wedding celebration, Ferenc gave his bride a totally chill, not at all elaborate, wedding gift. Cut to Castle Chachtice. As we discussed earlier, the castle could have been a Disney set by day, but we haven't yet regaled you of the utter horror it became come nightfall. It's very important that you get the full lowdown on this castle. As you already know, it's in the middle of nowhere, surrounded almost entirely by farmland with only a smattering of villages at its base. Getting there today, even with our modern transportation, still requires a long drive up a lonely mountain followed by an uphill hike. And the closer you get, the clearer it becomes that the castle itself is a cobbled-together selection of jagged gray rocks with a few small holes haphazardly left empty for windows. At the time, there would have been a wall completely encompassing the property. Escape would have been virtually impossible without intimate knowledge of the layout of the castle and the surrounding woods, which made it the perfect location for just, like, a little bit of murder. A smidge, if you will. Elizabeth didn't jump into killing immediately after her nuptials, though. She and Ferenc had five children, the youngest of which was born in 1598. Two passed away as infants, but two daughters and a son survived and were raised in the same house of horrors where Elizabeth conducted her murderous business. The combined status of Elizabeth and her husband made them an extraordinarily powerful couple, and much of her time in her early years of marriage was spent managing their vast estate. Ferenc, for his part, spent much of their marriage fighting against the Ottoman Empire. 
1591, 16 years after Ferenc and Elizabeth were married, the Turks invaded Hungary. This sparked what will be known as the Long War, which lasted from 1593 to 1606. Ferenc was one of the first to take up arms to fight for his kingdom and to inflict pain on others. If there was any lingering doubt about whether the two were a terrifyingly good match or not, Ferenc dispelled it on the battlefield. He was an incredible warrior, earning the nickname the Black Knight of Hungary among his soldiers. To his enemies, however, he may as well have been the devil incarnate. Ferenc's excessive brutality shocked his own men and drove nightmares deep within the psyches of all those who opposed him. He rose through the ranks quickly, going from a general to head commander of the entire Hungarian army, making a career out of his cruelty. It was said that he was particularly fond of impaling Ottoman soldiers on gigantic wooden spears. He enjoyed watching them struggle as they coughed up blood and flailed against their inevitable deaths. So the long war decimated the Hungarian economy, but Elizabeth never noticed. Ferenc was too busy showering her in gifts and loot he had claimed in battle. While their peasants starved in the villages below, the couple grew so vastly wealthy that at one point, they financially bailed out their empire in order to keep their country afloat. Two people, completely saving the Kingdom of Hungary with their deep pockets. Something to note for later. By most historical accounts, Elizabeth couldn't be bothered with the war until it came to her front door. When her castle was threatened, she, uncharacteristically, gave food and shelter to desperate peasants attempting to escape the invaders. Historians agree that this was more out of obligation and public presentation than it was out of the goodness of her heart. When it comes to the modern study of sociopaths, it's not uncommon for an incredibly violent person to present an empathetic front. The hope is to imitate empathy in order to keep their darker desires from public knowledge, increasing their chances of getting to continue their antisocial behavior. They have what BBC Science reporter Melissa Hoganboom referred to as an empathy switch. Sociopaths don't feel empathy, but rather turn it on when the situation calls for it. For instance, Ted Bundy worked at a suicide hotline. I'll give you a minute with that. So, Elizabeth and her husband didn't get to spend much time together those first few years, but when they did get the chance to hang out, they were known to use acts of violence towards others as a bonding activity. They had a shared love for torturing the young girls that served them, much of which was instigated by Ferenc. He delighted in teaching his young wife new methods of torture to further abuse their servants. One awful method they delighted in was rolling up pieces of paper, dousing them in oil, placing them between the toes of a victim, and then setting the paper on fire. There were also claims of him gifting his young wife a clawed glove so she could better harm her servants when she smacked them around. Talk about a match made in hell. There's no doubt that Elizabeth learned a great deal of horror from her bloodthirsty beau, but the Blood Countess unfortunately had more than a few evil influences buzzing around her. Let's meet our supporting cast, shall we? Elizabeth's main partner in crime, helping her commit atrocity after atrocity, was a strange woman named Anna Darvolia. She joined the Bathory household in 1601, but how she came to work for the Bathories is murky. What we do know is that rumors ran rampant about Darvolia's involvement in witchcraft and the occult, and that Anna's presence in the castle brought about an enormous change in Elizabeth's personality. Somehow, Elizabeth became even more sadistic. 
Her husband may have taught her the finer details of torture, but Anna was there to teach her to kill. Suddenly, the young servant girls working in the castle weren't simply being abused. They were being murdered. There was a washerwoman named Catalin and a house servant named Ilona Jo, who actually worked for Elizabeth's children as their wet nurse and nanny. Both women were said to have restrained young servant girls about to be mutilated, and to have provided the weapons Elizabeth called for. Her friend Dorka was another particularly heinous human being, one of the leading torturers of the group. He would get into sinister wagers with Anna over who could inflict the most pain on their victims. The youngest member of this horrific breakfast club cast was a young teenager named Fisco, a disfigured and vulnerable lad who was left completely exposed to this motley crew of evil and powerful adults. Rumor had it that he worked as an apprentice in the torture chamber, fetching tools of terror for Dorcas' sickening wagers. Villagers soon began to take notice of the bloody dealings in the castle. Eyebrows were raised when local clergy began to notice how often they were called there to perform last rites. Whenever a priest showed up to perform the sacrament, the Bathories would claim that the dead young girl had died of cholera. Some historians report that they had already buried the bodies before the rites were performed, which was unusual. Last rites were usually performed on someone's deathbed. One particularly suspicious priest finally pulled Elizabeth aside and outright accused her of murder. He's quoted as saying to the countess, Your grace should not have acted so because it offends the Lord, and we will be punished if we do not complain to you and criticize you, your grace. And in order to confirm my words are true, we need only to exhume the body, and we will find that the marks identify the way in which the death has occurred. In other words, this priest figured it was an icy day in hell if these girls had died of cholera. Needless to say, this did not go well for our suspicious churchy boy. Elizabeth was outraged at the priest, threatening him with her powerful connections who would harm anyone who dared whisper such accusations. Too bad for her that the word was already out. Rumors ran rampant in the village below of the dreadful blood countess who mutilated her servants and drained them of their blood. This very rumor is the one that would make Elizabeth famous. Legend has it that Elizabeth was obsessed with preserving her natural beauty and even more obsessed with elongating her life so she could continue to live in luxury for centuries to come. According to the story, one day a servant girl was brushing Elizabeth's hair when she accidentally pulled too hard on a tangle. The countess exploded, smacking the girl so hard with the back of her hand that the girl began to bleed. Elizabeth cackled at her pain and further chastised her for getting blood on her hand. But later that evening, while Elizabeth readied for bed, she noticed something. The hand that had been stained with the servant girl's blood appeared to have aged backwards. In fact, the skin seemed to look more youthful than it had in years. With this, a wicked idea began to blossom. After all, if a small amount of blood had such an effect, what if she was able to apply this method to her whole body? What if she was able to preserve her beauty by bathing in the blood of innocence? Not only that, but if done regularly, could she achieve the immortal life she so craved? Peasant deaths were a small price to pay for immortality. I mean, if she was already killing, she might as well make use of her victims for her own gain. And from that day on, whenever her victims were adequately tortured, they were then drained for Bathory's literal bloodbaths. Some versions of the legend even tell of her filling a chalice with blood and drinking from it as she bathed, making sure that her immortal potion was coating her inside and out. More blood drinking. Interesting. 
Okay, so we've made it to the bloodbaths. Now, that warning I gave earlier to tap out for eight minutes when it's time, that time is now. It's about to get gnarly. And if you're sensitive, but you stuck around because you just had to know, feel free to take a deep breath with me. Okay. To be honest, that was more for me than it was for you. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Elizabeth's victims were subjected to dehumanizing violence of the worst variety. They were burned with hot irons, beat to death with clubs, and had needles stuck underneath their fingernails. She would strip young girls naked, pour ice water over them, and leave them to freeze to death outside in low temperatures, or bathe them in a boiling tub of nettles while she rubbed the stinging plant into their backs. In warmer weather, she would cover naked girls in honey so that bugs would feast on their exposed flesh. She had a fondness for mutilation. It was said by several witnesses that her weapon of choice wasn't a club or a sword. Rather, it was a pair of scissors. With her signature shears, Elizabeth was said to have cut flesh from all over the bodies of her victims. She would snip the tips of their noses or other fleshy parts of their faces. She'd slice off their breasts, stab and mutilate their genitals, and hack their fingers and even sometimes their whole hands off. Hands seemed to be a theme. Witnesses claim that one of her favorite pastimes was using the blades to slice open the skin between her victim's fingers. And, perhaps to ensure a victim could not speak ill of Elizabeth in the afterlife, she would sometimes cut herself a little thread to sew their mouths shut. There were also testimonies of starvation. Witnesses said that Elizabeth would chain her servants tightly by the wrists and leave them to drink only their own urine. When starvation eventually took hold, she would hack off a piece of her victim's buttocks or thigh, fry it up in butter, and cackle loudly while she made them eat it. Forcing cannibalism on others seemed to give her deep delight, and there were also rumors that she and her murderous assistants partook in feasting on their victims. The worst part is that Elizabeth's reign of terror was common knowledge throughout the village, but the poor families had no mode of recourse to stop the vicious killings. You might remember the strict laws that were passed after the revolt. Because of these and the eye of the law, peasants were considered completely disposable. The power of the Bathory House was so great that it would have been nearly impossible to take action against Elizabeth, even if she was mutilating someone right before your eyes. It was illegal for peasants to bring charges against nobility, and even if they were able to, how would they fight such powerful figureheads? Perversely, some parents even viewed Elizabeth's bloodlust as a financial opportunity. Many a family would sell their children to Bathory for a lump sum under the agreement that they were to work for her as servants, and if their children should happen, air quotes, to die of cholera, more air quotes, then, oh well. Her riches and family gave Elizabeth the force field of nobility. With it, she was basically untouchable. Even with the intense violence and terror that surrounded the castle, things were somehow about to become twice as horrifying. Faring fell ill in 1601 from an unspecified illness. The speculations for what he could have had are all over the map. Polio, a stroke a war or combat injury of some sort. What we do know is that Elizabeth's husband withered quickly, 
and in the final years of his life, his legs were completely paralyzed. He died in 1604, leaving Elizabeth widowed at 44 years old, with three children and an enormous amount of various estates that she now had to manage completely on her own. An extensive empire was completely in her hands. Simply put, this didn't go well for anybody. Though, when she doubled down on her violence, it wasn't because she was oh-so-stricken with grief— On the contrary, Elizabeth did several things in the wake of her husband's death that were blatantly against custom at the time. Shortly after his extravagant funeral, she went on vacation to Vienna and bought a small fortune's worth of fineries for herself and her household. It was traditional for a widow to withdraw from public life for at least a year following the death of her husband, allowing her to grieve in her home. Elizabeth didn't do that. Shortly after her husband's death, she was back out, continuing to act as a public figure and continuing to collect debts she was owed. This wasn't a grief-stricken widow. This was a woman reveling in her complete freedom. After all, the trajectory of Elizabeth's life had always been controlled by others. She had been engaged, married, and become a mother before most people start high school. Now, for the first time in her life, she could make her own plans and come to her own decisions, and she took full advantage of her newfound status. If she weren't one of the most horrific murderers history had ever seen, I might be inspired. But instead of using her newfound freedom for literally anything else, she turned all of her attention to her favorite hobby. She took murder from a part-time gig to full-time, killing and torturing her staff left and right, specifically the young girls working for her. Of the witnesses who spoke to an investigator, many had similar interpretations of how Bathory's violence often unfolded. She clearly had a pattern. Survivors claimed that it would begin with a young girl making a mistake, something as minor as dropping a stitch or not cleaning the floor well enough. If Elizabeth was present, she would fix an evil stare on the girl, yell at her, and begin to beat her, regardless of who was present at the time. No matter how inconsequential the mistake they had made, almost every girl was stripped naked before she was tortured. Bathory did not simply mean to murder her victims. She wanted them to experience degradation to the fullest extent. According to survivors, Elizabeth also had a habit of devising specific and creative abuses to match the offense. For example... If a servant made a mistake in their sewing, they might be stabbed repeatedly with long, sharpened sewing needles. She was known to say, after sticking needles into a girl's fingers, if it hurts the whore, she can pull it out. When the girl would pull the needle out, Elizabeth would cut her finger off. Escaping Elizabeth, having lost only a few fingers, was considered lucky. More often than not, the Countess's bloodlust would result in a young girl being dragged down to the castle's torture chamber, where Bathory's minions would carry out the dirty work of torturing a young girl until she died, on one of any number of medieval devices. These victims could find themselves on the rack, being stretched until they cried out for mercy, or shackled by their ankles, necks, and wrists to a torture chair. Think of every single torture device you've ever seen in a movie. Castle Chachstitze probably had it. Pinchers were used on living people, insides were torn out, and there were also multiple cases of sexual assault at the hands of both her minions and Bathory herself. She hoped that the blood of her victims would grant her immortal life and beauty, but obtaining that blood clearly wasn't a chore for her, rather a regular and beloved pastime. 
This place wasn't a castle. It was hell on earth. Now is about the time some of you may be returning. If so, welcome back. To recap, Elizabeth and her minions did some really, really, really monstrous stuff, and nobody could challenge them because they were nobles. Then Ferenc died, and instead of grieving, Elizabeth doubled down on her serial torture and murder. Okay, you're caught up. So, for a long while, Elizabeth moved unchallenged. No one came looking for these young girls out of fear that they would be next. But one can only keep the revolving door of new servants going for so long before the castle is in complete shambles. And so, Elizabeth was forced to expand. To keep her household staff working for her comfort, Elizabeth opted to lure young girls in from the villages surrounding her castle. When she'd had her fill of mutilating and torturing these innocent young people, there was then the question of what to do with the bodies. Her appetite for blood proved to be so insatiable that her cronies were running out of places to dispose of the bodies. This was normally Catalan or Fitzko's job. The pair would bury the bodies in shallow graves on the castle property. But when the room ran out, there was rumor of the two of them hiding bodies in the woods, careful to place them so that they were just visible enough for wild dogs to find them, but not visible enough that a villager could, say, stumble upon a decaying carcass. And later in her reign of terror, Elizabeth would have bodies thrown off the side of her castle walls, causing them to plummet hundreds of feet to the rough terrain below or crash through the treetops of the forest. Her theory was that whatever was left of them after the fall would be food for the wolves that lived in the woods surrounding the castle. The year 1609 brought a turning point in Elizabeth's bloody career. Even with her wealth reserves and high-born name, she could no longer deny that her debts were beginning to mount. Not only that, but her closest confidant and most sadistic accomplice, Anna Darvolia, passed away due to a stroke. With her children grown and out of the house, Elizabeth fell into a deep depression and a spiral of loneliness. During this time, Elizabeth decided that she didn't want to murder servant girls anymore. And I'd love for the next sentence to be, and thus she retired from murder. But alas, she continued. Now... She wanted victims of a higher class. This was far riskier, especially seeing as the higher class the girl, the more people would come looking for them. But there are two prevailing theories as to why she did this. One is that Bathory was simply running out of nearby peasant girls to slaughter, and her beauty-slash-immortality bathing regime simply could not be interrupted. Another belief is that her lady steward Erzi Majorova, who many believed was a witch, convinced her that she could get rid of her mounting estate debts if she just had a higher class of victim. I mean, hey, she's already bathing in blood so she can live forever. That's not the wackiest idea anyone's ever had in this death castle. Whatever her reasoning was at the time, Elizabeth decided to make her wrath look a little more legitimate. She took all of that murderous rage and bloodlust and threw it into opening a finishing school for young, noble-born girls. Oh, God. She assumed this would be the perfect cover for her to upgrade her murderous rampage with a higher class of victims. She could torture and kill high-class girls all while their parents paid their finishing school fees directly to her. She would then use her profits to reconcile her debts. In her mind, this was a win-win. But there is one very large problem here. Aristocratic parents had the means and the power to go looking for their disappearing daughters. It became clear almost immediately 
that if someone went missing from her fake finishing school come murder house, answers would be demanded as to what had happened to the girl. Peasants couldn't bring charges against nobles, but other nobles sure as hell could. However, since Elizabeth's mental state was rapidly deteriorating during this time, she didn't see this as a problem. She couldn't see anything past the fresh supply of virginal young women now paying for their place in line to die, not a single one of whom had any suspicions of their new headmistress. None of the girls expected they were there as fodder to fill the ever-draining tub of blood for Elizabeth's baths of immortality. Inevitably, as teenager after teenager disappeared, aristocratic parents came a-knockin'. Elizabeth would come up with bizarre and outright unbelievable excuses as to where the girls had gone. One such excuse was that one girl had gone crazy and killed several other girls before dying by suicide herself. This tall tale convinced a staggering amount of absolutely no one. With the fleet of parents in a full panic, the nobles went to King Matthias II and begged him to open an investigation. Until this point, most nobles had only heard rumors of Elizabeth's wicked ways, but now it was beginning to directly affect them, and they wouldn't stand for it. The king agreed, and placed the responsibility into the hands of his highest-ranking representative, Gheorghe Thurzo. It's entirely possible that Elizabeth could have gone on torturing and murdering for the rest of her depraved days, if not for Thurzo's investigation. Thurzo was a stocky man with a large chestnut beard and comically arched eyebrows. And while, yes, he was in service to King Matthias II, there was another caveat to Thurzo's investigation. He was a close friend and confidant of Elizabeth's former husband, Ferenc. The pair were such great friends that Ferenc actually pleaded to Georgi to look out for his wife after he passed on. This was ripe ground for a conflict of interest, and it's true that Thurso treated Elizabeth with a level of respect that she would never have been given in another circumstance. But luckily for the people of Transylvania, it was clear that Gheorghe Thurso's loyalties to his kingdom were stronger than those to his old friend. Thurso first began his investigation by stealthily interviewing anyone who had something to say about Elizabeth. It turned out that Many were happy to testify about the Countess's hobby of murdering every living creature she could get her hands on. He quickly found dozens of people willing to talk at length about Elizabeth Bathory's horrific hobby. Servants who had somehow managed to escape Castle Chachtitze spoke of walls drenched in blood, bone-chilling screams at all hours of the night and day, and of the ever-growing cemetery in the castle courtyard. However, none of the people who spoke to Thurso had ever seen the inside of the torture chamber. He became convinced that this was because anyone who saw the inside of the torture chamber never came out again. Thurso now had a mountain of evidence against Elizabeth, and he knew he had to bring her to justice. But he couldn't shake the guilt of letting down an old friend when he promised he would look after his widow. Seeking advice, he wrote to Elizabeth's family members to ask them what to do. Ballsy move, Thurso. Elizabeth's relatives reached the conclusion that Thurso should complete his investigation and make sure Bathory was held accountable. But she was not to be brought to trial. She would be sent directly to prison to save her family the embarrassment of such a public affair. Notably, not a single one of her family members argued that Elizabeth was innocent. Hmm. In December of 1610, Thurso was confident that he had all of the information that he needed, but he wanted to be absolutely sure before he brought his friend's widow to justice. He knew he had to go to the source. That is, he needed to get inside the castle. 
To do this, he arranged for himself and the king to have dinner at Elizabeth's home. Each of the men took note that she seemed exceptionally nervous, but was doing what she could to keep up the facade of a well-off hostess. In fact, everything was going well until the two men were served post-dinner cake. From the very first bite, both men began to feel ill. The cake had been poisoned. The men left abruptly, as you should always do if you're poisoned, and due to their quick exit, the both of them survived unscathed. Thurzo knew then that all of the information he had gathered must be true. Why else would Elizabeth poison an inspector, let alone the king? So with a heavy heart and a slew of armed guards, Gergi Thurzo returned to the castle on New Year's Eve 1610 to arrest Elizabeth. He and his men hid just outside the castle walls and waited until they saw Elizabeth and her steward step outside. Thurzo and the guards watched as the two women cast a protective spell over themselves in their castle, while also invoking supernatural forces to do them one more favor, to bring about the death of Thurso himself. When the pair finished their incantations and went inside, the small battalion advanced quietly towards the castle entranceway. Upon witnessing the spell, they were confident that they could, at the very least, charge Elizabeth and her steward with witchcraft. But their worst fears were confirmed when they got closer to the doorway, where they discovered the mutilated body of a young girl lying mangled on the ground. Two more were found just inside the walls. Without any time to grieve the slain young women, the men were shaken by blood-curdling screams coming from inside the castle. The men crept through the dark and dingy hallways with nothing to lead them through the darkness but the sounds of the screams. Their search led them straight to the torture chamber, where they found Elizabeth's team of accomplices hard at work, brutalizing another innocent girl. The guards arrested the abusers on the spot, and others fanned out through the castle to bring Elizabeth into custody. Her reign of terror was finally over. Elizabeth pleaded innocent, blaming everything on her servants and henchmen. But 306 people had testified against Elizabeth, and every single last one of them, including her own family, believed her to be guilty. The members of her murder crew would even turn against her, incriminating themselves in the process. Thurso remained unmoved by her declarations of innocence and locked Elizabeth in her own dungeon. We still don't have a final count of how many people Elizabeth slaughtered. Some sources say around 80 people, while others claim it is much, much higher. One servant girl named Susanna managed to escape Elizabeth's clutches and told the tale of a ledger Elizabeth kept in a leather-bound journal, a record of each victim. If this ledger did exist, according to Susanna's memory, Elizabeth's kill count would be a staggering 650 people who met their end in the nightmaric halls of Chachstitze. A journal was never recovered, so... We'll never know for sure. But, I mean, if it were me, and I were being accused of killing 650 people, that journal is probably the first thing I would burn. This seems like a good time to highlight what an anomaly Elizabeth was. These days we have so much more information about murderers than we did then. What causes people to kill and why they kill the way they do. FBI psychologists have profiled early signs someone may kill. Signs like animal cruelty, wetting the bed, and a head injury in early life. And many scientists and doctors have created in-depth profiles on the types of people who most often commit serial murders. But even with all this modern information, Elizabeth still presents question after question. For example, only 16% of serial killers are women. Right off the bat, 
That makes Elizabeth Bathory special in a perverse way. Especially when you take into account that the more famous names we know, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, most of their kills top out in the mid-30s. Eileen Warnos, one of the most famous American female serial killers, only murdered seven people total. From what we know, the spectrum of Elizabeth's kills ranges from at least 80 to over 600. This means that even at the lowest estimate, Elizabeth is more prolific than any of America's most famous serial killers. At her minimal body count, she would have murdered more than twice the people Ted Bundy ever did. It's also been shown that women tend to kill for much different reasons than men do. Men are more likely to kill for sexually motivated reasons, finding a sick sort of relief when taking a person's life. Women, on the contrary, often kill for more pragmatic reasons, like revenge or status. Elizabeth had all of the status she could want and more, but it seemed to many that the degradation of Elizabeth's victims was a sort of intimate aggression more in line with a sexually motivated murder. Many of her victims were sexually assaulted. Was killing some sort of power rush for her? The revenge theory also makes a perverse kind of sense. Many serial killers murder people who have things they can't have or look away they wish they did. It's said that Ted Bundy would murder women he was attracted to as a way to assert power over them. Could Elizabeth have murdered these young women because she felt they were more beautiful than she was? She was bathing in their blood to preserve her own beauty and gain immortality. I mean, was it all a power play? Did she feel she deserved her victim's youth, beauty, and life more than they did? And why did she feel that she deserved to be immortal when it came at such a bloody cost? We'll never know. There are some serial killer profiles that Elizabeth Bathory fits to a T. Women are much more likely to murder children and the elderly. Bathory almost exclusively murdered young women, many of whom were barely past their early teens. Women killers also tend to operate in places that they're most comfortable with, killing in their homes or at their places of work. The castle was her home for all of those long years. Women are also far more likely to kill those close to them instead of strangers. Who's closer to you than the young woman who brushes your hair or helps you dress. There's also a question that has popped up in recent years that's absolutely worth asking. How guilty is Elizabeth? It's clear that we don't have any true record of her murders, as much information about her lives only in legend and a scant amount of written text. Even then, it seems clear that she adored violence. But there are some Hungarian scholars who say that Elizabeth Bathory may not have committed any murders at all. Remember earlier how I mentioned that she and her husband bailed out their country? Well, it was King Matthias II, the man who came to dinner with Thurso and also instigated her investigation, who owed them that enormous debt. You know what kings hate to do? Owe other people money. Some Hungarian scholars have theorized, then, that instead of Thurso sparing Elizabeth from trial as a protective gesture, the king actually moved to incriminate Elizabeth so he could wipe out his own debt. Perhaps he even denied the trial, so she wouldn't have a proper opportunity to defend herself. Many people make the very valid point that Elizabeth was an extraordinarily powerful political figure and a woman who was ruling vast wealth without a man by her side to control her, quote-unquote. 
She surrounded herself with less than desirable characters and is thought to have practiced witchcraft and regularly dabbled in the occult. Her wealth and freedom intimidated the king. It's not a reach to theorize that his court went on a mission to discredit and destroy her. After all, if she received the death penalty, the king stood to inherit all of her lands and the fortune that came with it. It should also be noted that Elizabeth's life was far more based in rumor and fiction than verifiable fact. No one took the time to leave real accounts of her cruelty, because if she was locked up, problem solved, right? Once she was imprisoned, she was reduced to a horror story people would tell around the fire. For example, her bathing in the blood of virgins, draining her victims to fill a pearlescent tub, sucking from them their beauty and their life force. There's no historical evidence that that ever actually happened. Of course, it's completely possible that she did, but none of the servant girls who testified against Bathory alluded to the bathing in blood. Not once. Now, anyone who was able to see Elizabeth's bloodbaths likely didn't live to tell the tale. And of all the horrific torture she partook in, her bathing in the blood of her victims absolutely sounds like something she would do. It makes for amazing inspiration for Bram Stoker. Hell, she even technically lived in Transylvania. But for the history books... Was she really seeking immortality in the blood of her victims? We're simply not sure. Don't let Elizabeth off the hook just yet. Sure, none of the servant girls who testified said that they ever saw her in a bathtub full of blood. But we'd argue that several of their tales are much more horrific. They mentioned that the floors of the torture chamber were sticky with blood, thick and putrid with spray on the walls as well. Oftentimes, servants would be made to clean up after the brutal murder of someone they worked with and had come to know. The rest of the brutal torture we described, the torture machines, the cannibalism, the needles, the scissors, all of that is completely true, according to those who testified to Thurso. And addressing the witchcraft element, sure. Anyone who practiced a non-Christian religion at this time was ripe to be ostracized. Yes. Yes. Powerful women throughout history have been targeted by those who believe that women's freedoms should not extend beyond childcare or homemaking. Countless times we've watched influential women face unspeakable violence. But non-influential women have faced unspeakable violence as well. Dozens upon dozens of innocent young girls suffered unbelievable horrors under her roof. Whether or not Elizabeth participated in them, which several victims testified that she did. While yes, we should discuss how powerful women often face incredible sexism. We also need to discuss that too much power in the hands of anyone is a bad thing. We know Elizabeth Bathory's name. There are books written on her. Movies. Hell, we put her name on this podcast episode. We have information on her childhood, her marriage, her children, her crimes. When looking for names and information on her victims, the only one we found was Susanna, the girl who bravely told the court she found Elizabeth's killing journal. And that's the only thing we know about Susanna. We'll never know the names of her countless victims, of young girls searching for honest work who found themselves in the middle of a waking nightmare. Elizabeth was only caught because she began to murder young women whose families had enough money and influence to look out for their daughters. Elizabeth knew that poorer girls were perfect victims, knew that lower-class beauties would never be found because no one could afford to financially or legally ask questions. Sure, her mental state was rapidly declining in her later years, but when she first started killing, Elizabeth was a smart and pragmatic woman. She knew exactly what she was doing picking the victims that she did. So whatever became of our bloodthirsty countess? Well, for one thing, she never stood trial. 
In January of 1611, her cronies faced scores of witnesses and even several surviving victims when they had their day in court. Judges were also able to examine corpses taken from her castle. Ilona Joe, Dorka, and Fisco all faced death sentences. The first two were tortured as recompense for their brutality. Their fingers were torn out by iron tongs, and when they were killed, their bodies were burned. Fisco, the young disabled teen who was caught in the flurry of violence, received a lighter sentence because the court ruled that he was too young and vulnerable to these cruel adults to be truly guilty. He was spared the torture, but he was still beheaded and burned. The washerwoman Catalan was the only one of Elizabeth's henchmen who escaped death. She was given a life sentence because it was said that she was the most empathetic of the bunch, often being beaten herself for sneaking food to her prisoners. As for Elizabeth, Thurso kept his word and made sure she was spared the embarrassment of a public trial. She was instead confined to her castle, locked away in the dungeon that many of her crimes had taken place in. The only people who ever came to see her were priests and Thurso himself. The holy men would report that Elizabeth was crazed, violent, and felt no guilt whatsoever for her crimes. She continued to declare that her assistants were the true murderers. When one of the priests asked why she didn't stop them, she reportedly flew into a rage. Real good sign of innocence there. Elizabeth's most intense anger and resentment, however, was saved for Thurso. Several times when he came to check on her, she would scream at him violently, until one day Thurso had had enough. After calling her a wild animal, he told Elizabeth, You are in the last months of your life. You do not deserve to breathe the air on the earth or see the light of the Lord. You will disappear from this world and shall never reappear in it again. As the shadow envelops you, may you find time to repent your bestial life. I like this Thurso guy. Elizabeth died in 1614 after complaining to a guard that she had cold hands. The guard advised her to lay down and get some sleep, and she did. Never to wake back up. Her body was buried in the church cemetery on the land of Chokstitsa Castle, but it didn't stay there long due to public outrage. The body was supposedly exhumed and taken to the Bathory family crypt. However, when the crypt was opened in 1995, the body of Elizabeth Bathory, Hungary's most famous murderess, was nowhere to be found. A picture-perfect ending to truly one of the most horrifying stories I've ever heard in my life. Remnants of Elizabeth's murder house still stand to this day. The wall, the structure of the tallest tower, remnants of the courtyard. It's a tourist attraction now. People make YouTube videos of their tours where the videographers poke around the ruins buying magnets with pictures of how the castle would have looked or popping open cans of a Bathory-themed soft drink called Bloody Power. If you're feeling like an alcoholic beverage, the hard cider brand Strongbow offers a bright red cider with the Countess's likeness on it, the brand name written in runny horror movie font on the bottle. On the site of the horrific brutality and fear, families in fanny packs now roam around taking in the views and the hiking trails. One particularly bone-chilling image comes to mind from these YouTube videos. It's one of a young girl, not much younger than many of Bathory's victims, running around the ruins in an Elsa dress. I mean, her family is at a castle. Aren't all castles home to kind animals and singing princesses? Even though it proves to be one of Slovakia's top tourist attractions, plenty of locals still have a healthy distrust of the hallowed and potentially cursed grounds. In one homemade video, a group of ghost hunters get a rare tour of the castle at night. 
The groundskeeper, an older man in a newsboy cap and worn-in jeans, tells the group in Slovak that he almost never comes here at night. When the group of ghost adventurer fanboys asks him why, he replies solemnly, I have respect for the supernatural phenomena. Us too, my guy. Us too. You can't argue that the grounds are haunted, if not by ghosts, then by lies, brutality, rumors, and cruelty. Unbelievable, inexcusable cruelty. Sure, much of Elizabeth Bathory's life is shrouded in gossip. She might never have bathed in blood to achieve eternal youth and eternal life. She never did get her immortality. But in a way, she kind of did. Hundreds of years after her death, here we are, analyzing, studying, talking about one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. The image of a woman bathing in blood is, yes, gorgeous and terrifying, evoking a whole host of emotions. But I would argue that the actual story of Elizabeth Bathory, the stuff that got written down, the story of a woman who inflicted pain for the mere sport and pleasure of it, is much much scarier. Chasing Immortality is hosted and recorded in the City of Angels by me, Tybee Diskin, and produced by Alice Flanders, with sound editing and music by Doug Borntrager. This episode was researched and written by Alex Rouse. Our show is executive produced by the immortal Travis McElroy. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and tell your immortality-chasing cohorts to listen. Good luck, and happy hunting. Hi, everybody. It's me again, executive producer Travis McRoy. If you're enjoying the show, which I sure hope you are, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We're an independent show, and we'd love to make more and more episodes and keep this show going forever. But we can't do that without your support. So please consider going to patreon.com slash chasing immortality and becoming a supporter today. We will be eternally grateful.